All right, maybe seated. If you have your Bibles, open them up to First Thessalonians. So what we did was we've, we've been we started a new series in First Thessalonians called Practical and Prophetic. So the, the Apostle Paul, um, he was the greatest mind that God ever created. You know, we, we think about writers and authors and poets and artists of, you know, and you think of Michelangelo and um, Donatello and the other Ninja Turtles. And you think of, of these amazing people that God, you know, that use that we, but n- Paul doesn't get enough credit. The reality is the Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, who, who preached to um, on Mars Hill to the unknown God, an amazing sermon, and the, the intellect that he has as you read through Romans, as you read through the Bible, and the, the way God created this guy's mind is, is the, the greatest mind that God ever created, bar none, is the Apostle Paul. And, and if you've ever met somebody like that, one of those guys that's a type A personality that, you know, we, we had a pastor like that back home, and we had a, we had a contest to try to get Pastor Bob to give you a one-word answer to a question. And for years, nobody ever won the competition because Pastor Bob would never give you a one-word answer. So we'd come up to him with some crazy stuff like, like, hey, hey Bob, is, is that a cloud? And he'd look up and he'd say, well, you know, the clouds are formed by the, I mean, he'd tell you how the clouds are formed and what type of clouds are, you know, you'd say, hey, Bob, is that ketchup bottle red? And he'd look over and he'd tell you how the color red is formed and how it mixes. And, you know, he could never just tell you his mind just didn't work that way. But, but the nice thing about the Apostle Paul, the great thing about the Apostle Paul is that he also was super practical. He, he could just give you practical advice for everyday living. He could, you know, and so here in, in, in um, First Thessalonians, we get lots of practical Christian advice. You ever talk to anybody, non-Christian, or maybe somebody says, oh, I tried to read the Bible and it's hard to understand. You ever talk to anybody like that? I always bring them to this one verse that says, be kind. And I say, hey, read this. Tell me how hard to understand this is. Be kind. Well, well the, there, there are places, and I, I, I get it, right? There are some things that can be difficult in the Bible, to, just to be honest. But the reality is, if you, re, if you really read the Bible, it's so full of practical advice for Christian living, for everyday living. So in, in 1 Thessalonians, we get this great mix of both. Practical Christian living with some really cool prophecies. So today... And so we just kind of started going through Thessalonians. We didn't know we were going to land here on this day um, with a soft opening and kids in it. I'm ready for 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. So open your Bibles there. And I thought, what a great Sunday, because what 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about when we have all the kids in. I didn't plan this, you guys. I'm sorry. But this is where we are. We're going to cover it. But lots of SEX uh, (laughs) talk in this chapter and so we're going to cover it as we go through. I'm going to do it PG-13 as I can. Uh, I really will. I'll stick to, to the PG-13 part. Hey, look at chapter 2, verse number 13, the last verse of, of chapter 2. I'm sorry, last verse of chapter 3, 3, leading into chapter 4. It says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So Jesus is going to come in what's called the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about that in the last, or here in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the chapter of the Bible that covers the doctrine of the rapture. But this particular verse in chapter 3 that I just read to you is not a reference to the rapture because he says that, he's going to, that Jesus Christ is going to come with his saints. And if anybody knows about the second coming of Jesus, sometimes those two ideas get, get mixed up. The, the rapture is, is the coming of Jesus, but technically that's not the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus happens at the battle of Armageddon. 
So Jesus is going to come for his bride in the rapture, but he doesn't come all the way to the earth. It says we're going to meet him in the clouds. And there's going to be this, this violent taking away of the bride of Christ. And for seven years, he's going to seal us in a wedding ceremony. And then at the end of seven years, it says that we're going to come back with Jesus on white horses, Revelation um, chapter 19 and the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus is going to, at that time, defeat the, the armies of Antichrist. And this battle in the Megiddo Valley in Israel, where it will take place. So when he's coming with the saints, that's you and I, then um, that's the second coming. When he's coming for the saints, that is um, the rapture of the church that we'll talk about today. So as Paul's going to get into that, he says, therefore, with this all in mind, this context of Jesus coming back, here's one of the things that I think that, you know, we can be very clear about is that Jesus is going to come back. We all know that, that, and again, those that say they can't understand or read the Bible, if you can just read English, you could read the New Testament, and hundreds of times there, there's, there's reference to the fact that the whole plan was that God was going to bring a Messiah. Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary in, in a city called Bethlehem. All the old history, 4,000 years of Old Testament history, prophesying that God was going to bring a Messiah fulfilled in Bethlehem. And since then, now 2,000 years of history of God saying this same Jesus who was born in a manger in, in Bethlehem is going to come back. Now, we know he's coming back. We just don't know when he's coming back. And we don't ever want to get fooled by somebody giving a date or a time. But what's really cool is that Jesus didn't just leave us in the dark. He said, you don't know the day or the hour, but you know the times and the seasons. What Jesus said, he said it was like labor pains on a pregnant woman. And it's such a perfect example, analogy of how we can understand the timing of the return of Jesus Christ. You know, if a woman takes a pregnancy test and she comes in and she shows you two lines, you, don't, you, you wouldn't know other than the test that she's pregnant, right? You can't look at her until she's pregnant. But then as, as time goes on and maybe by the time she reaches the six-month mark and she's beginning to show, well, now you can, you can tell she's pregnant, right? Like... You know, how far along are you? Anybody ever ask a woman who's not pregnant how far along she is? I used to beg Lydia, and she would never do it. Three pregnancies, I don't think she ever did it for me one time. I would beg her. I would just say, one time, just one time do it. When someone asks you how, how far along you are and she's big and pregnant, she says, I want you just to look at them and just, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> but she would never do it. But as, as the baby gets closer and closer, something happens, and it's called labor, and in labor, it starts with either a water breaking or um, contractions. And the way, as you guys know, contractions work on a pregnant woman is that first contractions are far apart. Maybe they're 40 minutes apart, and they're not as intense in, in pain and in frequency. And then as it gets closer and closer and closer to the baby being born, the, the contractions get closer and closer together and more severe in intensity. And that's the analogy that Jesus used to say that we would, we would not know the day or the hour but we would know the times and the seasons. And we call these things signs of the times. And as we see the events of COVID-19, as we see the events of, of, of plagues in Africa and fires in Australia and earthquakes in Utah and Idaho and various places, these are all things that Jesus described very vividly in the Bible as signs of the times. And oftentimes I get asked, you know, is, it, is this the thing or is this the time? And I always have the same answer. I don't know. But what I do know is that all of these events that Jesus described that you're watching happen are signs of the times. 
I don't think you can have like a sign of the times. Even on a pregnant woman, I think the only really big major sign you get is the water breaking, right? The contractions, I guess, they're getting no, but you still, when a woman's water breaks, you can't say the baby's going to be born at 12.59 in 30 seconds. You still don't know. You know, everything is different, and, but you can see the signs, and one thing you can know for sure is that a baby's coming. Well, in these days that you and I live in, the Bible says that Jesus is going to return, and we are seeing the signs of the times. And I really feel like we're seeing contractions that are getting closer and closer together and more and more severe, and there's going to come a baby, little baby Jesus, meek and mild, but he ain't going to be a little baby Jesus anymore. He's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to come with a... With a, with a sword out of his mouth and with, with on a white horse and, and the desire of the disciples and those that walked with Jesus to see him overthrow the Roman government and build his kingdom is coming. And Jesus will fight. Now, so Paul's saying, listen, I said all this to say that in chapter 4 of, of Thessalonians, Paul is saying that in this context of Jesus' return, there's a certain way that I expect you should be living. That, that Paul believed, he's going to say in here, we who are alive and remain. Paul put himself in the category of believing that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. It's been God's design. Listen, this is super important. It's been God's design since the Apostle Paul for, for men and women to believe that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. And, and then John tells us the way God designed and created this was so that it would purify how we live. John says in 1 John 3, 3, he says, He who has this hope in him, what hope? The hope of Jesus' return, it purifies how you live. Any of you guys got teenagers at home? Okay. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think if your teenage son calls you and says, Hey, Dad, where are you at? What time are you going to be home? What do you say? Oh, don't worry, son, I won't be home for like two days. And you're like in the driveway. <laughs> Right? Like, it's kind of strange when, you, when my teenage son calls me and says, Hey, Dad, where are you? When are you going to come home? Because whatever he's doing, he doesn't want to be doing it if I'm pulling in the driveway. And, and, and that's the concept that God says that if we live with this expectation that Jesus is going to come every time, we don't want to be caught with a hand in the cookie jar. And it's supposed to purify how we live. But what, what Peter tells us is that the world is going to mock us. And that's okay because every time somebody mocks you about the rapture or about Jesus coming back, you can just tell them, hey, you're, you're fulfilling biblical prophecy. Thank you. Oh, Jesus isn't coming back. This is so crazy, too. What Peter says, and this is exactly what they say today. Peter says that in the last days, people are going to say, hey, Jesus is not coming back. And this is how we know he's not coming back. Because he hasn't come back already. What kind of logic is that? Does anybody else think that way? I'm like, how do you know I'm not going to punch you in the face? Because I haven't yet? That's not a good one. <laughs> I'd maybe keep your hands up because... Because I haven't done it yet doesn't mean I'm not going to. And, and, and as, as the day gets closer, they're going to mock the idea that God has always wanted us to live. Our founding pastor of Calvary Chapel. And he really believed it in all his heart, man. And he wouldn't come out publicly and say it all the time. But his kids, especially his daughter, Cheryl, who married Brian Broderson, who's the pastor at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa today. Cheryl would tell, would tell people, yeah, my dad used to say like at home around dinner. I know Jesus is coming back before the end of this month, before the end of this year, in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 90s. And Chuck died before he came. But that was God's design. And, and he lived a great life because he lived expecting that Jesus was going to come back. So let's look at what Paul says we should do after all that long intro, you guys. Sorry for that. Today's supposed to be short sermon. I don't even have a clock, and my clock burned out up there. Um, I don't know what time I started, but it's 11 o'clock. 
I'll be done by two. No, no, no promise I'll be done by two. Okay, so hey, it says chapter four, verse one. Finally, then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. Pastor Gerald used to always say, ought. And I used to thought he was a farmer from Kansas, and I'm from the city in L.A. And I just thought it was like a hick thing to say ought all the time. But it's actually a Bible thing. It's just in the Bible a lot. The word ought, how you ought to live. Now, again, in the context, so we're looking at two things in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at those at the, at the end of that verse. How we should walk and how we should please God. Now, listen, Jesus said the same thing in Luke 21. Now, this is a little bit ominous you guys and again not intending to scare anybody but these are words in red so you know i don't i don't write the mail i just deliver it but look what jesus said jesus said concerning the times of him coming and and luke 21 if you know is the all of it discourse this is where jesus gives us all of the signs of his return and at the end of chapter 21 he says the importance of watching jesus says but take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you unexpectedly. That's what Jesus said. What is carousing? Carousing is just as it sounds. It's, it's loose living. It's living promiscuously, living with somebody you're not married to, um, on and on and on of carousing and partying and drinking and drunkenness. He mentions drunkenness. And, and that this day should come upon you unexpectedly. And I guess the question is, what do you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Right? Imagine there's certain places you wouldn't want to be or things we wouldn't want to be doing when the Lord comes back. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. And then Jesus said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus says it in Luke 21, the same concept. Paul's teaching that same concept in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then he says that, um, again, that, Exhort the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. You know one of the, my favorite things that Jesus ever said? Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. A friend of mine loved that verse so much he named his church Abundant Life Church. To, to just camp on that concept that Jesus said to you, and this is Jesus' heart for you, that you would have life and that more abundantly. And Paul here says that, that be careful how you live in these last days. Be careful how you walk. So that you might, and what is the what is what is his will? So you won't have any fun. You don't want you to go to the parties and be drunk and be carousing, so that you're miserable all the time. Exactly the opposite. God is a good, good father who loves you so much that he wants you to abound in this life. I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And, and this type of lifestyle is not going to bring you the abundant life that you think it will. It's going to bring you emotional and physical trouble in your life. And then he says. Um, in verse 2, now one thing on verse, verse 4, and then I'll move on really quick. He says how we would please God. Now really quick, there's a concept, biblical concept, that you were created for God's good pleasure. Some people bothered by that. I, I, I don't know. If I, I don't really get it. But um, that the idea that God was selfish or something, that he created me for his good pleasure, like a toy or something. or like. But, but you know what's great about God is God didn't create a bunch of dogs. God, God didn't create a bunch of robots, and that's why you have a free choice. That's why you have a will. That's why you can serve God or you cannot. You can live your life how you want, because then if you choose to love God and serve God, God now can reward you. 
God can now say that it's genuine and it's real. And when he gives you a reward and he gives you heaven and he says to you one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord as you enter heaven in the streets of gold, then it's, it's, it's earned, right? You know, like if, 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 I, if I really wanted to know if, if my wife loved me, I, I can't chain her to a bed in the basement. And then I leave and I go about my day, go to work and I come home. Oh, she's still there. She loves me. And if she wants to eat, she has to say she loves me. You know, I'm going to slide some water in. I love you. Oh, she loves me. That's not love, right? You have to set her free and give her a choice. And God gave us a choice. But he did create us for fellowship. It says another place for his good pleasure or for fellowship. And basically that God wanted a companion. He wanted a friend. Jesus said, I call you friends. But you can't have a friend if, if the friend doesn't have a choice of whether they want to be your friend or not. You know, I often say this, and this is kind of heady, but, you know, do you think that Jesus, you have to have a little premise for this first. If Jesus really is, you have to suppose that Jesus is the God of heaven. He created all things. He created the universe, the stars, the moon, the the sun and the earth and the moon, the same distance so there could be life and everything's so perfect, your body to be able to heal itself and, and all the wondrous things that we have that God created. Now, the God of heaven, who's God, who, who's the only, only person in human history or the only entity in, in the universe that can create from nothing. God's the only one that can speak something into existence. You know, some of you guys are good with wood. I could give you a bunch of wood. You can make me a new pulpit. But you're not going to make me a new pulpit if you don't have any wood. But God, and, and so God, could Jesus have created an argument while he was here that was so powerful that people would have to believe? Could God do that? Could God overpower? Is God smart enough to overpower your intellect if he wanted to? He hasn't chosen to do that. If there's a God in heaven, he could make an argument so strong that you would just believe. But again, there's no choice on your part. There's no, there's no, nothing to reward you for. Again, you're just a robot. You know, I love God. God loves me. And, and no choice to, to whether you want to serve God or not. And then he says, look at in verse two, four, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. My kids in here today say sanctification. <laughs> Vacation. One of them said, Hey, twice look at verse three and verse four. The word sanctification is mentioned in there, right? In, in three and in four. So whenever God repeats himself, um, you know, this, this would really warrant a pause right here and to unpack what sanctification is in your life and my life. I'm not going to do it today because we got the kids in and I had some notes to do it, but it, it's kind of heady and um, just not time today. So I'll just try to say as brief as I can. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. You, get, you repent once unto salvation and you will repent the rest of your life unto sanctification. So you, you, don't, you, you don't get saved over and over and over again. If you sin, you need to get saved again. So once you're saved, you're always saved, you're born again. And then when you sin or when you fall away or when you have struggles or when you just live life like we live, there's a process of moving you from where you were when you met Jesus to where God wants you to become. That process is called sanctification. And maybe if you've been walking with the Lord, you would agree that you're more um, grown in the Lord, you're more mature in the Lord today than you were last year and the year before that and the year before that. That process, the word sanctification, technically means set apart. It's very similar to the word 
holy in the Bible? What does it mean to be holy? Holy means that you're separated unto God for His purpose and His pleasure. That you've removed yourself from the things of the Lord, the things of the world, unto the things of the Lord. That's sanctification. So sanctification, again, you know, there's this kind of hard verse to understand in the Bible that where God says, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do you work out your own salvation? It's counterintuitive to what the rest of the Bible says, that you do nothing for your salvation but believe. But that is a sanctification verse. It's a verse about a process that we go through of being separated unto the Lord. So, so what Paul's talking about is after you've already been born again and you're saved and you're a Christian, you're going through this process. And this is how you ought to walk and how you ought to um, please God. And then um, in verse 3, for this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you should abstain from immorality, sexual immorality. Listen, for whatever reason, this is a key. And, and, and throughout the Bible, God does put a special emphasis upon sexual immorality in the life of Christ followers and the life of, 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 of all of us, really, as, as believers in Jesus. It's the one sin that separates, that God separates out um, and says that it's a sin against your own body, which makes it a, a, a worse type of sin. And so here, Paul, he says in these days of, of Jesus' return, that one of the things that he's going to camp on is the idea that we're to live sexually pure lives before God. That we're not to have, and what does it mean? You know, there's lists of, of where they unpack this a little bit, and it's fornication and on and on and on, and adultery and, you know, on and on and on with adjectives to describe what, what it is. But basically any sex outside of marriage, God forbids in the process of sanctification and for the believers in Jesus. And, and there's, a, there's an emphasis on it. And again, it's not because God's a killjoy or a rob. It's, it's, it's for your, your good. And he says in verse 4 that each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. So your own vessel is your body, your, your life, and you preserve it. Now listen, what God designed sexual intimacy for, the Bible says only between a husband and wife, there's this, this amazing biblical dynamic. It says the two become one flesh. And he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So there's this great mystery where, you know, a mom and a daughter can have the most amazing relationship. Uh, two, two brothers, a father and a son. But no relationship has that dynamic where God says literally, physically, he takes two people and creates them into one. But that happens in marriage. And so sexual intimacy by God is designed to take two people's spirits and tie them together. And his design is for one man and one woman to come together for all of life as he ties those spirits together. And every time that we um, are intimate with somebody, there's a spiritual act that's taking place of tying your soul to that person. You ever see anybody or meet anybody that, that, that is very promiscuous? Sometimes there's an empty look in their lives and in their face. And part of the reason is because they've given so much of themselves and they've been tied to so many different souls that it's damaging to their life. Now, the good news is, listen, wherever you are today, God always says that this is a forgivable sin. It's not an area of judgment or condemnation. It's an area of, hey, God loves you. This is an area that's important to him and to you because he, you're his child. So if, if you're guilty, repent, get it right. Begin to follow what he says here in the word of God and, and live your life for Jesus and God will give you an abundant life. 
There's no condemnation, God says. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who love God and are called according to his purposes. So ask God, say, God, forgive me. I've, I've fallen in this area. You know, the Bible says, as were, past tense, some of you in the areas of sin and, and, and guilty. Guilty as charged. And came a point where I asked Jesus in my life and was guilty of these same sins. You know, I have a son in heaven. I have, I have four kids here and I have one in heaven. When I was in just out of high school, the girl I was with got pregnant. She had a miscarriage about five months. And, and, um, and, and, and this, is, this is a lifestyle that, that before Jesus, I, I didn't know any better. I just lived. And when I came to Jesus, I asked God for forgiveness and repented and desired. And God gave me and healed and, and, and gave me a beautiful family and wife. But, it, but So get it right. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Confess it as sin. But just know this. You cannot continue to live in unrepented sin and expect God to bless your situation. And that's in love. That's speaking in love from my heart, not in condemnation, not in judgment of you. It's in love. Get it right. Seek God. He loves you, loves you, loves you. He wants what's best for you. Hey, so um, enough of that talk. Let's move on. In verse 5, it says, Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. Because you know God, you should behave differently. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brothers in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And we also forewarn you and testified. So listen, no one should take advantage of someone else in this area because God is the avenger. And so if you're the, if, if you're the predator and you're praying, just know God is, is, is going to avenge that person. God is going to take care of that person. And then in verse 7 it says, For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. What does holiness mean? Much like sanctification, it means, everybody say, set apart. Holiness is to be set apart for God. Therefore, he who, verse 8, rejects this, does not reject man, but rejects God, who also has given us his Holy Spirit. Hey, there's a lot in verse 8. wish I had a week to unpack it, but let me just say this. When we see that type of language, it means that God, it says God has given you the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's the amazing thing about the economy of God. God does have some pretty tough rules, some pretty tough standards he wants you to live by. But he doesn't just leave you in your flesh and on your own to follow these things. Men, God told you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I met some of your wives, so that's impossible. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I was gonna pick, I was gonna use my wife as an example, but then I thought, now nah, the couch is a little lumpy. I'll, I'll pick on your wife. No, um, that's that is an impossible command, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life helping you to do that. Some of these commands that God gives you, but listen, He doesn't leave you with just commands. He also gives you the power of His Holy Spirit to draw from, to help you, to give you a way of out, to give you the power you need to to be overcomers and to live a successful Christian living life. Amen. All right, we got to move on. It says um, in verse number nine, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Paul dealt with this already in the Thessalonian church. He encouraged them to be a church of love. We unpacked this a couple of weeks ago in a sermon. If you missed it, you can go back and catch it on the Facebook or on our uh, website. But the church in Thessalonica, they excelled in this area of brotherly love. And Paul is commending them over and over again for this. And again, the number one sign 
for you and I as Christians. The number one sign that you're filled with the Spirit of God is love. The number one sign that you're a true disciple of Jesus and a Christ follower is love. Love one for another. And on and on and on. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Do you realize that the fruit of the, the Spirit is love, period? Manifested in, love, in joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, um, and all those attributes, gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, are all manifest of, of, of the, the Spirit of God working in you. But the fruit of the Spirit is singular. The evidence of the Spirit of God in your life as a Christ follower is singular, singular and that's love. And it's one of the most important things for us as believers to, to focus on and to, to exercise. And so Paul says, hey guys, you are doing this well. And he's commending them that they're loving one another, that they're, they're marked by their love. And indeed, you do so toward all and the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You guys are doing so well in this area of loving one another. Keep it up. Keep doing it. Do it more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we command you. Is that practical? Or is that hard to understand? Is this hard for you to understand? Let me tell you. Mind your own business. That's Bible. <laughs> well, what did you learn at church today? Oh, the pastor just said, mind your own business. No, I didn't say it. God said it. You know, there, there is this thing from God's Word that just, for us as believers, to live a, a quiet and peaceable life, to mind our own business, keep our hands to, to the labor, to work hard, to be people who work hard, to earn what we have, to, to be good citizens of, of our counties and our cities and our state. And then he says, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Part of the reason that God asks us as believers to be good employees, to be good employers, to be good workers, to be good citizens, is because it's, it's a witness to those who are non-believers and outside of our, our camp. And then he says in verse number 13, um, there's so much you guys to unpack in the next five verses, and I am going to do a little abbreviation of it. Next week when the kids are out, we're going to camp on this subject right here because this is right here what I'm about to read. This is like the staple for the rapture of the church. It's mentioned in, in um, 1 Corinthians. It's mentioned in Revelation. It's mentioned in other places. But this is the key note teaching on the rapture right here, 1 Thessalonians 4. Also, he's going to touch on it again in 2 Thessalonians. We'll get to it. But we're going to camp on this concept because it's just where we are. But look at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant. Paul says that five times in the New Testament. And every one of them are probably areas where the church struggles in a little bit. And it's interesting that the place that Paul keyed in on, on, on the idea, I don't want you to be ignorant on these areas. Let me just tell them to you really quick. 1 Corinthians 11, Bible typology. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning Bible typology. Romans 11, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the role of Israel. And so understanding Israel and its role. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. And then in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual warfare. And then the fifth time in the New Testament that Paul uses this phrase is right here in 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning prophecy. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the rapture or the second coming of our Lord. And then he says in verse 13, Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, I want you to know that um, the word sleep in the New Testament is a way that, that the Bible describes when believers die. 
Remember when Lazarus died and Peter came and Martha said, if my brother had, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, he's asleep. And they said, oh, great. Well, if he's asleep, then let him rest. He's going to get better. And then Jesus told them plainly, no, he's died. But that term asleep is used in the Bible to describe when a believer dies, because really we never die, right? Amazing concept, right? True concept. You don't die as a believer. Jesus said, if you live and believe in me, you will never die. And what happens to your flesh? It goes to sleep, and one day God's going to resurrect it. Hopefully he doesn't give it back to you. Yeah, just part of it, right? The good parts. He's going to fix it. He's going to give you a glorified body. You're going to have a heavenly body, the same one that Jesus had after he rose from the grave. But what happened in, in, in the, the church in um, Thessalonica was Jesus, Paul was only there, as you guys know, three weeks. It's pretty phenomenal that he planted this church in three weeks, and, and they were growing so fast. And for such a young church, for Paul to trust them with Bible prophecy and Jesus' return and rapture and end times events, Antichrist he's going to get into in the next book to the Thessalonians was pretty fascinating to me. But this young church... People in the church were dying, and, and they, they thought, oh, no, they missed the return of Jesus because they died before he came back. What's going to happen to them? And they were nervous. And so Paul was writing this letter back to deal with this concept that the Thessalonians had missed in the second coming. And so he says, those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, I almost entitled my sermon today out of verse 14, if. Everybody say if. Hey, if you have your Bible, look at 1 Thessalonians 4:14. Word number two. What's the second word in, in two two or fourteen fourteen? If that's a big word in the middle of that sentence. Look at your neighbor and say if. Listen, if 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 you believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So there's a big if clause there. You want to go up in the rapture, you want to be caught away to meet the Lord in the air. There's, there's an if here. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then in verse 15 he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, everybody say the Lord himself, not an angel. Come on, not an angel. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be raptured, caught up together with, the, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is rapture verse. So those who have died, those who have preceded us in death, where are they right now? Your loved ones that have gone on to, to, to glory. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They're in heaven with Jesus. And those who have gone on before us, he says the dead in Christ will rise first. Does that mean that they're now asleep? No, they're not asleep. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. What is asleep? Their bones, their, their flesh, their, their body. God's going to gather who they were and he's going to resurrect their physical bodies and he's going to transform them. They don't have to get back to the same old, probably look about the same, but we'll just be glorified. 
We'll have a body that Adam and Eve originally had before sin came, a body that was designed to live forever, right? You guys read Genesis, the first couple of chapters in Genesis. How long did people live in the early days? In the Bible, 900 years. Methuselah was the oldest guy that ever lived, I think, right? 969, 65 years, 965. So that's the same. he lived in the same body you and I have that God originally designed that would have lived forever. Death was never God's design. When, when sin and death entered the world because of Adam and Eve's sin, by the grace of God, he shortened our lifespan. But the body that you have is designed to live forever. Now, of course, God's going to give it an upgrade. Jesus said um, that in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will bring you into myself that where I am, there you may be also. And so he's going to bring us to heaven in a glorified, in a restored body. But there's going to be a bodily resurrection. People get tweaked about this. What about cremation? What about somebody who died in a battleship and was blown up and was eaten by sharks and and then the shark, little ate little fish, ate what the shark let go. And people ate the shark and ate the little fish. And then they did, you know, did their business by a tree. And, a, you know, and it's like that person's, listen, it's not a problem for God. Okay. Cremation does to you what burying does to you in three years. Cremation does in 20 minutes. And eventually... It's not a problem that God is going to gather. Your soul is what matters. He's going to build around you. But there's going to be a bodily resurrection. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured. People say, oh, the word rapture is not in the Bible. No, it's not in your English Bible. But if you read a Latin Vulgate, the word rapture is in there. So just get a different version if that bothers you. Because the word caught up is, 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 the, is the Latin word raptus, where we get our English word rapture. It's a good word. It's a word that fits the scenario and is true of it. It's not the only time it's used in the Bible in Thessalonians. The idea of being caught up happens many times in the Bible, and the word rapture is used other places in the Bible, a raptus, which is translated caught up. Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's, and he's praying for him, and all of a sudden it says Philip was caught up. He just was disappeared. Jesus was caught up several times in his ministry. One time they were going to come and they were going to kill him. And it says that Jesus was just kind of moved to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the same idea four or five times in the New Testament is is repeated. So there's going to come a time where we're raptured. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then your loved ones who, who are have gone on before us, and Abraham and Isaac and Moses and King David, that we're going to meet together, it says, in the clouds. Now, this is God coming for his church. This isn't God coming or Jesus coming with his church. And then we go and we disappear for seven years in what's called the marriage supper of the lamb. A Jewish um, wedding ceremony takes seven days. We're going to do it in seven years as a model. And then at the end of the seven years is, is Jesus coming with his church is what we just read in Thessalonians chapter three, Revelation 19 on white horses. So there's going to be a mass disappearance of God's people, the Bible says, as Jesus comes for the church. Now, how that's going to unfold, I don't even know. There's so many different cool, like, ideas to think about in that. You know, Tim LaHaye and, um, who's the guy that wrote Left Behind? Tim LaHaye and, thank you. I don't sound right, but maybe it is. Um, 
You probably know that. It doesn't matter, right? But in the Left Behind series, the, the concept was like a guy's driving his car and the rapture happens and his car goes careening off the freeway and there's chaos and one guy's a Christian pilot and he's, he's flying a, a commercial airline and it crashes and there's this mass chaos when the rapture happens. That, that's a possible scenario. It's kind of one that's good for Hollywood. There's so many other ways because Jesus said that he's going to come as a thief in the night. So maybe he starts plucking us away in such a way, in a, in a, in a quick, quick way, but in a way that it's kind of subtle. One of the ideas I've always had about the rapture is, is that there may be some kind of dust cloud that, that covers the rapture for a week or two weeks or three weeks. You know, what if there was a nuclear attack on the United States? You know, and, and part of the world is really going to be affected by the rapture and part of the world is not. You know, in Saudi Arabia, in Mecca, when the rapture happens, they're not going to be affected because there's zero Christians. Because if you're not a Muslim in Mecca, they'll cut your head off. Even if you lived there and grew up there, but you're not a practicing Muslim, you're not allowed there. So in certain places, when the rapture happens, there's not a big population of Christians. But the United States is a place where we are going to be affected greatly. But maybe something happens. Maybe there's a, you know, some kind of, that's just a thought too, you guys. Don't trip on this. I'm not prophesying anything. I'm just saying some thoughts for how the rapture could go down. Um, but, But needless to say, the Lord is going to come. It says we're going to meet him in the clouds to meet the Lord. And the word clouds there, um, I think we'll meet the Lord in the sky somewhere. But uh, the, the word cloud in the Bible is oftentimes used um, in, in Hebrews. It's used to describe those that have gone on before us, the cloud of witnesses. So it's possible that that cloud is actually the believers. It's, it's the people of the Old Testament. It's your loved ones that went on before you as we meet together in the rapture to be with the Lord. For the Lord himself, verse 16, and we're done, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. We say it's the trumpet call of God, that there's going to come a trumpet. We're listening for a trumpet, and we're not looking for a trump. We're looking for the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds, in the air, and always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Hey, listen, the rapture is meant to be comforting. If we're going to go through the tribulation period, as some believe into middle or the post-tribulation rapture theories, it's not very comforting. But it's comforting to know that we're going to escape these things that are going to come upon the world. And listen, these, this talk and these, this, these prophecies and rapture talks, they're never intended to bring any fear. We have nothing to be afraid of. And, and, and over and over again, when Jesus and when Paul and when the writers of the New Testament talk about this, they always talk about the idea that we should comfort one another with these words. We should be encouraged by these things. Amen? Amen. Um, is the worship team, you guys got a song? You come up, play a song? Sorry. Um, yeah, so let's have the worship team come up. Let's stand together and let's pray. The kids were amazing. Hey, kids were too good. Like if you were a little rowdy, I would have had to stop preaching sooner. But because you guys were so good, I didn't even really notice that you were there. So I just kept going. Yeah, all your parents are going to buy you ice cream for the pastor for being so good today. No doubt. Hey, love you guys. Hey, I know with all this rapture and prophecy talk, it's, it's super cool and exciting and also kind of creates questions from time to time. So if you do have any questions about these things, uh, please let me know. One of the things I'll, I usually do 
as I turn you on to about three or four resources that I use, different pastors and leaders that teach specifically and primarily on biblical prophecy kind of resources, just Facebook feed stuff, YouTube stuff you can check out if you're interested in this stuff. And again, just be in the Word of God. It'll make sense. Again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. When? I don't know. And don't ever let anybody give you a day or hour because the Bible says we'll never know. But there is a concept that's Bible that we should be ready for the return of Jesus Christ because we don't know what hour he's coming. And it should purify how we live. And the Bible says that Paul said, there's held up for me a crown in heaven for, for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's seven crowns that you can earn here on earth that God will give you when you get to heaven. Don't get too excited because one day he'll give you all these crowns for your accomplishments and you'll just be so excited when you see Jesus, you're going to take them off and throw them at his feet anyway. Oh, Jesus. But seven crowns you can earn. I want six of them. The only one I don't want is there's a crown for the martyrs, those who die for Jesus. They can, they can keep that one. But I'll take the other six. But one of them, Paul says in Timothy, is for those who love the appearing of Jesus. You know, and I, and I get it, right? Sometimes I talk to folks and they say, oh, I want to get married first. I want to have kids. And I really don't want Jesus to come back right now. And, you know, and then as they grow in Jesus, I talk to them a year later, two years later, and they, they totally change. Like, oh, what happened? Oh, I got married and got kids and I can't wait for Jesus to come back. But being ready and loving the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a crown for it. Being ready. And it does purify how we live. Amen? And so listen, if you're here today and you need to get your life right with Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. If you don't know if you're ready for the return of Jesus Christ, it's a simple prayer to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. The Bible says, if we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, then we will we'll be ready for the rapture. And so a prayer to say, Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again the third day. So I want you guys to pray with me. I ask everybody in the church, pray out loud. Maybe if somebody's praying this prayer for the first time, it'll give them a little bit of comfort. And again, there's no magic in the words. Whether I say the words right or wrong has no bearing on your salvation. But if you in your heart right now are saying yes to Jesus, that's going to that's gonna change your life. That's God's going to save you and give you salvation. He's going to deliver you from the darkness into the light. And so if you want to really commit your life to Jesus right now, it's a matter of surrender. And I'll lead you in some words, some meaningless words to basically communicate one thing to God. Yes. Yes, Jesus. Yes. Amen. Let's pray together out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I ask you into my heart. I give you my life. I give you all of my life. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. God bless you guys. Hey, let's, let's worship the Lord one last song, and then you guys have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Children's ministry will be open next Sunday, um, so we'll have that. All right.